Hi, everyone, and welcome again to another episode of Gaudium at Spez 22 podcast and YouTube channel. I am indeed blessed today to have with me, I'm very excited, uh, uh, His Excellency, the Bishop of Lincoln, Nebraska, my hometown, uh, James Con Bishop James Conley. And uh, what why this is uh, very special for me today is because uh, Bishop Conley was actually a dear friend back in the day when I was in the seminary. We went to undergraduate seminary together for a while, St. Pius X in Erlanger, Kentucky. And then we were at Mount St. Mary's in Emmitsburg uh, for a while together. At that time, you were a pre you were a seminarian for the Diocese of Wichita. Then you went off after ordination. You were in Rome for many, many years working in the, you know, well, I don't know what they call what, what do they call that bishop's office now? They call well, it used to be called the Congregation for Bishops, and now it's called the Dicastery for Bishops. That's so we didn't call it Bishops Are Us. <laughs> bishops Are Us. Now, I, I have a very dear priest friend from Allentown who was also in that office, maybe with you at the same time. He's now rector of Mount St. Mary's, Andy Baker. Do you know? I'm sure you know Andy Baker. Yeah, our time overlapped. Uh, my last two years were his first two years. And then, um, so we lived together at the Villa Stritch, which is the residence for U.S. priests who, who serve in the Holy See. And then, uh, because we've had this long-standing tradition, going back to your days, of Lincoln sending men to Mount St. Mary's, we have guys at my, Mount St. Mary's now, and so Monsignor Baker is the rector of a, a number of our seminarians. He came to ordinations in May, so we've continued that friendship uh, after our, our days in Rome. Oh, that's great. And then after you were in Rome, you were made an auxiliary bishop in Denver, Colorado, and then elevated to the, become the ordinary of the thriving megalopolis of Lincoln, Nebraska, which actually is a sprawling diocese covering all of southern Nebraska, south of the Platte River that transects Nebraska. And uh, it must have been also, I know how thrilled I was when you were named Bishop of Lincoln, having since I knew you, but I knew a lot of my former uh, seminary friends, now priests in Lincoln, were thrilled. It must have been like a homecoming for you almost to have so many. Well, it was, you know, and in being from Kansas, you know, we've got this, uh, we, we used to, everybody used to be in the Big 12 until some people defected. But we all, you know, played <laughs> each other in football and basketball. And so going from Wichita to Denver and then to Lincoln is sort of in the same part of the country. Um, but yeah, when I came back, uh, came here for the first time in 2012, in November at the press conference, I saw a lot of our old classmates from the class uh, of, of 1985. And, um, you know, I made a comment at the end. I said, yeah, I see a lot of my old classmates. I haven't seen them since seminary. For some reason, they've gotten a lot older. I don't know what's happened to them. <laughs> so, you know, uh, but I tell people, you know, at one time I was skinny. I had hair. And, you know, it wasn't ugly. Uh, now I'm fat, bald, ugly, old. I, I don't know what. Yeah, so, yeah, you're probably looking at me and saying the same thing. When did chap get so damn old and ugly? But uh, here here I am. And I have to say this, and then we're going to get to the topic of the day. When I first met, met you, you were uh, you were this like almost like this hippie guy fresh off, I believe, an organic farm. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, you were wearing like John Lennon round glasses. And for the, my, my listeners should know as well that uh, Bishop Conley went through the famous integrated humanities program at the University of Kansas, along with other noteworthies like Paul Coakley, who's now Archbishop of Oklahoma City. Uh, and then from there, you did spend time at the monastery at Faucambeau, France. Am I correct? 
Correct. Correct. Those are really yes. my formative years. I converted to the Catholic faith in the, in the integrated humanities program as a junior, an undergraduate at KU. Uh, and I was 20 at the time and then went on to uh, Foncambo after I graduated from college with a degree in English literature. And like my dad said, what are you going to do? Open up an English shop? <laughs> oh, totally unemployable. And so I said, well, I'll go to Europe. And so a lot of my friends had traveled there and ended up at this French monastery. And uh, it was a cheap place to stay, good food, good wine. And I ended up kind of discerning, first, the vocation to monastic life, and then uh, discerned that that wasn't for me, and then came back uh, a year later and uh, was invited to to uh, farm with uh, a friend of mine who inherited his grandmother's farm. And so we were farming organically, kind of I, I'd really fallen in love with that rural life and that Benedictine aura at Labora. And so another couple moved out there. and I was sort of the fifth wheel. I was the bachelor farmer, you know, out there. And so we, <laughs> all, we all lived together in a house that didn't have uh, electricity or running water. We heated with wood stoves. We grew everything ourselves. We even farmed with horses. And of course, they thought we were absolutely crazy out there, you know, and they didn't know who was married to whom. And uh, <laughs> that was like, this, is like a, this is like a commune, you know, but it was a Catholic commune because we were all converts to the Catholic faith. And it was yeah. really during those years of, of the rural life that um, I discerned a vocation to the diocesan priesthood. And it was from there I went off to Pius and met you. That's right. That's where we met the infamous St. Pius the Tenth sounds very similar to our farmhouse, and some we have running water, electricity, but we don't have central heat. We do heat our house with a wood stove, uh, so that's one similarity, and we grow a lot of our own food. But anyway, all right. So that's all like the preliminaries today. What we want to talk about the main reason I wanted Bishop Conley, I wanted to talk about a lot of different topics, but they're all profoundly related. I want to focus on the liturgy, on the Eucharist, on evangelization, the ongoing Eucharistic revival right now. Uh, some of those, maybe uh, some of the issues that swirl around that Eucharistic revival, the nature of the liturgy and silence and evangelization, all these sorts of things. So I'm going to just turn this over to His Excellency right now, where there's just a very basic generic opening. Uh, the, the the American Catholic Church is currently undergoing a Eucharistic, uh, a process of Eucharistic revival. That's what they call it anyway. So what do you see as, as, as so important about this Eucharistic revival? Well, that's a good beginning question, because as we kind of talked just briefly before we went on the air, that, you know, it was really providential, a kind of stroke of genius in a way, or providence, that uh, that the bishops chose this particular revival, this theme of, of reviving the Eucharist, reviving our love, our devotion, our understanding of the Holy Eucharist as a, an evangelization, three-year evangelization initiative. And because, um, you know, the bishops could have come up with all kinds of different ways to evangelize, you know, that as, as a, we've all read, you know, these these surveys and polls tell us that, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know if I believe it, but it's probably true, pretty, pretty close to true is that a large number over half, let's just say, of Catholics don't believe in the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist anymore. And <clears throat> it's just a symbol. You know, and um, and so if the Eucharist is the source and summit of our Catholic faith, which uh, it is and comes out right out of the Second Vatican Council, um, then we need to start there. You know, we, we need to start the, at the place where the source and summit of our Catholic faith exists. And if people don't believe in the 
essence of the Eucharist, what it is, and it's you know more than just the real presence of Jesus, it's the representation of the salvific act of love, which changed everything, the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And if we don't understand that that's what the Lord commanded us to do, do this in memory of me, so we don't forget the greatest act of the human race history, uh, and we do remember that every time we come to mass. If we if we've lost our understanding of that, and uh, and we don't believe in that anymore, then we've lost everything. And so the bishops decided that let's start there. Let's try to revive this understanding of the Holy Eucharist and uh, and the liturgy in the liturgy, which is really you know where it all takes place and an encounter with the living Lord. Because in the Eucharist we you know, we don't encounter the dead Christ on the cross. We encounter, we encounter the risen Christ, you know, his passion, death, and resurrection as a single act of redemption, of redemption and atonement for our sins. And that's at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. So the bishops uh, kicked this off a year ago in June. Uh, the first year was, um, for me at least, it was kind of like just wrapping my head around this thing. We didn't do a whole lot here in Lincoln Although we talked about it, I preached about it, we didn't really do much. And then this year, we really have initiated a number of things. And I think a lot of other bishops, too, have said, look, you know, this is a great opportunity. We got to jump on this thing, take advantage of it. And of course, you know, uh, it concludes um, one more year. But it, but the high point, I think, is it's going to happen at the, the end of this next year. Twenty Well, it's in the middle of 2024 in July, July 17th, to be exact. Uh, of 2024 with the Eucharistic Congress. Now, the last time the United States had a national Eucharistic Congress was in 1976 in Philadelphia. Philadelphia right? Yeah. And then... Carol was there. Yeah, the unknown Archbishop of Poland, Krakow, Poland, came as a, as a participant. Little did anybody know that two years later he'd be elected Pope. Uh, so who knows who's going to come to this one? Uh, in July of next year. But um, so that was the last time we've had a Eucharistic Congress. That's a big deal. And I and I uh, I didn't go. I wasn't even Catholic. Oh, I just barely I just become Catholic. I was Catholic in 75. So I was 76. So I see this. I hope that this event here in our country next next July in Indianapolis is going to be something akin to World Youth Day in Denver in 1993, you know, a really epic event for Catholics in this country and for everybody in this country, because hopefully, you know, it'll be, uh, it'll be a lot of coverage and we've come a long ways since Denver as far as media goes. So hopefully this will be something that captures the imagination of the whole country and leading up to it. And it's kind of in dramatic fashion, which I think is really cool. Uh, we've got these four pilgrim routes from the four corners of the, of the country, yeah. the south, the north, the east, and the west, of a Eucharistic procession, uh, all converging in Indianapolis. And it's going to come right through the Diocese of Lincoln. It's going to come through North Platte, you know, well, Holdridge, Hastings, uh, into Lincoln. And then we're going to take the Blessed Sacrament to the Holy Family Shrine in the Archdiocese of Omaha. I'll hand it off to Archbishop Lucas. And then he'll take it and then it will go down to Kansas City, St. Louis and Indianapolis. And then it converge with the uh, routes that are coming from the other three parts of the country uh, to begin that Eucharistic Congress. So um, so I think that when that's going to be here, it's going to be middle part of June, I think June 10th and 11th. And so that's I'm kind of keeping those dates as sort of a, 
a marker, you know, that we're, we've got that much time to kind of build up. And we're doing our own little thing, too. I don't know if you read about this, this Eucharistic passport program we've initiated. I have no talk about that. I haven't I have not heard about this. So have you heard of, uh, you know, the Nebraska passport uh, by the Nebraska Tourist Commission? They, they they want to get people to go out and see all the sights and wonders of Nebraska. So they give you a little yeah. passport and you get a, and you go and you visit these sites, you know, like the Nair, the Niobrara River up in the north, you know, and out in the sand hills and all these places. Um, and you get this little passport and you visit these places and you stamp your passport like the Camino of Santiago de Compostela. And you can tick off all these different sites. Well, I kind of got this idea because I love pilgrimages. I've done the Camino three times. I went on a pilgrimage this summer to the St. Cuthbert's Way up in Scotland, England, to the Holy Island of Lindisfarne. And, um, so I like this idea of pilgrimages. And so I initiated this pilgrimage here in the Diocese of Lincoln, where we've identified 17 different sites and chapels and parishes where they have Eucharistic adoration. And that, you know, you get this, we distributed 15,000 passports last weekend and we put stamps, we put, we put together a nice stamp, you know, you know, yeah. stamp on the passport and put in the back of these 17 churches so that then people now, can, and they don't have to walk, they can drive because, you know, 25,000 square miles, you know, <laughs> Colorado to the Iowa border, that's a little too much. Um, but, you know, there'll be maybe some crazy guy will do that, you know, um, but the idea is then you make a holy hour before our Eucharistic Lord in these places, uh, these sites, and then you stamp your passport and you, and then you go. And it's not as easy as just kind of ticking these off because some of these chapels intentionally are places where Eucharistic adoration, for example, only takes place on the first Friday of the month. So you got like now you got seven shots at it. You know, you got you got to ca catch it on the first Friday, you know, and that's yeah. the way you're, that's the only way you're going to get your stamp. So there's a bit of a little bit of a challenge. So I'm going to give a prize. I don't know what it is for the first 10 to complete. And of course, it's all in the on, you know, honesty program. I'm, I'm presuming they're not faking it and you know, stamping these things. Uh, but that the first 10 to complete the whole pilgrimage, you know, gets a, gets a prize. I don't know what it is. But, uh, I don't think people be faking it, right? Because that's like stealing Bibles. What, what's the yeah. point of stealing a Bible, right? right. That's true. That's true. I, I don't think they're going to have anybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. But the idea is to, um, you know, the idea is, is one is to get people out and about to see the beauty of our diocese around these different places. And we, we've got them from uh, Rulo down in the south southeast part of uh, the state out to Imperial, which is way out in the mountain time zone in the yeah. by the Colorado border. Uh, Holdridge, um, Plattsmith, you know, of course, here in Lincoln, we've got the Pink Sisters who have perpetual adoration. So all these places that people maybe have never visited. You know, yeah, and uh, they're going to go and visit these places. Make and we've partnered with Hallow the app, the Hallow app, to provide content for the Holy Hour because some people, you know, never made a Holy Hour. Let's say, and they like, what am I supposed to do during that hour? You know, and so it's got a nice little yeah. uh, program of how you spend that hour. And the idea, ultimately, the most important thing about it is that it gets people to a point of silence and in encountering. The Eucharistic Lord. So as they're as they're in that little chapel or church, looking at the monstrance, because they're all exposed in the monstrance. It's, it's one of the requirements, not just to the tabernacle, which is good, right. but this is actually during adoration exposition. They say, like, what do I believe? Is that really Jesus before me in the monstrance? And am I really a believer in the real presence, or am I just sort of, what is this thing anyway? You know, and hopefully yeah. they'll ask those questions and then open their hearts and the Lord does the rest. 
you know, he'll he'll be able to speak to their hearts as well. Gorod Kor. This this is just fantastic. You know, for those listening, you might be saying, well, that's well, good for the Diocese of Lincoln that Bishop Conley had this great idea for this sort of pilgrimage passport sort of thing. But the fact is, uh, I think th- I, too, I share with you the love uh, for pilgrimage. I, I, th- I love shrines myself. Uh, near where I used to live in the Lehigh Valley, there was the, there's a national shrine to Our Lady of Chestahova. And my wife and I would go there quite frequently. It was very much a kind of pilgrimage where it took an hour for us to get there. But to us, it was worth I, I'm half Polish. So to me, I called it Polish Disneyland. And it was like, you know, chicken soup for my little half Polish soul. Uh, but also, you know, near, near I am now Scranton, there's the St. Anne Shrine. Uh, which is dedicated, obviously, to St. Anne. And I lo- there's something special about shrines, but absent shrines even, just churches that have, like, Eucharistic adoration going on. One doesn't necessarily have to wait for an organized passport program like you're doing. You know, people sitting there listening just, in, you know, with regard to their own parishes can organize something along these same lines just amongst their friends at their parish. Hey, let's let's spend the next several weekends doing pilgrimages to these various and posting our experiences on social media and so on. I, I think this is a fantastic idea that you've I've never heard of it before. So I think this is this is really great. Now, you, you've hit upon something that I think is very, very important. And so we can segue from here and talking about what's going on specifically in Lincoln to the question of um well, I would. I want to back up a second and say, and I don't want to talk too much here, but you hit on something at the very beginning of your remarks about you know the real presence and and the uh, surveys showing that a majority of Catholics don't believe in the real presence. And okay, who knows how to really take that? Uh, but I, I would say two things with regard to that. Number one, I think you nailed it when you said if you don't believe in the real presence, there's a whole bunch of other stuff you're probably not accepting either, which is that the mass is a sacrifice, that the entirety of the paschal mystery of Christ is made present in this liturgy. And that's what we mean in many, many ways by the real presence of Christ. It's it's the resurrected, crucified Christ that is made present to us. But also then I think of the document put out by our Holy Father, Pope Francis, uh, Desideravo, Desiderio Desideravi, or Desiderio Desideravi, whatever it was, I can't remember the exact title, in which it was a beautiful meditation on the liturgy. And what he points out in there is that one of the reasons why we see a, a diminishment in respect for the Eucharist in the church today is because generally in our culture, there's been a diminishment in our belief in and respect for the entire realm of the symbolic which would include the realm of the ritual uh, and, and liturgy. Too many Catholics, I think, view the liturgy as, well, this is just the Catholic way of doing stuff on Sundays to praise God. The Protestants do it a different way. You know, it's, it's, a, you know, it's a Whopper versus a Big Mac. Who cares? It's all the same kind of thing, essentially. Uh, but they miss that there really is something profound going on in the liturgy on this symbolic level that isn't just a symbol as we as we come to think of it. And this is the Holy Father's kind of point. So I was wondering, maybe uh, we talked beforehand about, you know, the poetic soul. You had a quote from Newman, uh, the need to greatly increase our respect for the symbolic in order to increase our respect for the real presence and the role of silence in all of this. I know that's a huge umbrella, but go ahead. Sure. You know, I, I'm glad you brought that up because as you were speaking, a couple of things come to mind. 
Uh, and I've kind of really kind of recently rediscovered this in a, in a different way than I have believed in it before. And when I became a Catholic, I remember studying the, uh, the sacraments. You know, I had no clue of what a sacrament was. You know, I knew about baptism, but that was about it. I grew up in Presbyterian church. We just have one sacrament, baptism. And the, uh, the, the, the definition, the catechism defines a sacrament as an outward sign instituted by Christ to give grace. Right. Right. Now we're signed, instituted by Christ to give grace. So a sacrament um, is a sign or symbol um, that points to something beyond itself, a reality that exists beyond what you see, feel, taste here. And the sacraments with a capital S are efficacious signs. In other words, Unlike anything else, they're a sign that cause what they signify. Right. I use the example with the kids. Like, for instance, when Jesus says over the bread, this is my body, it becomes the body of Christ. It's not a sign of his body. It's, it, it becomes his body. It would be like if we're pulling up to a stop sign and the sign of the stop sign tells us to stop. Um, but we can run that stop sign. And I dare say that you probably run a stop sign. In there. I have. <laughs> I have. Yes, I got tickets for it, too. If, if that would, if, if that sign was an efficacious sign, our car would stop. Even if we didn't put the brakes on, we'd come to a halt because it would cause what it signifies. That's the mystery of the sacraments. They actually cause. And so that's a sacrament with a large S. But I believe that the whole world is a sacrament. In other words, with a small s, that we have to have a sacramental imagination so that everything we see and, and hear and touch in the world through our senses point to something beyond what they what we're really seeing. And that is true in nature, you know, like for instance, a beautiful sunset, stars at night, um, but also, you know, the, the signs of friendship you know, we have our relationships, you know, there's something beyond what we're experiencing at the time. And the subjective element is that we have to have the ability, or at least the, the grace, maybe from God to be able to see beyond the sign to what's behind it. Now, in nature, I think it's easy, because that's why I think that, you know, the greatest scientists and the greatest uh, inventors you know, were believers because they saw in material reality um, that there was something mysterious behind just the elements. Uh, there was something moving behind everything. And so if they're honest scientists, they're going to say, yeah, we can see how this works and we can, you know, dissect it and we can really drill down to its basic elements. There's something else going on here. You know, there's some, there's some other animating principle that's causing this life or this movement uh, whatever it is. Um, and so I think that the, the the signs and symbols in our lives are very important. And in a highly secularized world where, you know, everything is just immediate uh, to our senses, we, and it's so much coming to us, you know, so much information coming to us all the time. You know, we don't stop to look beyond the signs. That What, what are they pointing to? Um, and so I think this idea of the sacraments and the sacrament of the Eucharist, which is the greatest example of an efficacious sign, 
you know, the bread and the wine become yeah. the body and blood. So we say, you know, this is the blood, of, this is the wine of Christ, this is the bread of Christ. And we say, this is the body of Christ, the blood of Christ. And uh, those, that sign value, that symbolism. Uh, and of course, I always think of that great uh, uh, Flannery O'Connor line, you know, that yeah. uh, they were talking at the dinner table about, well, Eucharist is just a, a symbol. And her great line was, well, if the Eucharist is just a symbol, well, then the hell with it. The hell with it, yeah. But she's speaking of symbol as a non-efficacious sign in that regard, right? right. Which, which is the modern concept of, oh, that's just a symbol of something, which is, we almost treat symbols like we treat metaphors. You know, it's just like, well, it's a kind of descriptive thing, but it has no real bearing on the reality that it's, that it's signifying. Uh, and that's kind of what Flannery O'Connor meant there. She's saying, well, I know what you're saying, and I reject that. But I'm sure Flannery O'Connor, having the poetic soul that she did, understood there's a deeper kind of symbol that actually makes present, really present, what it is that it symbolizes. Absolutely. You know, her novels are just filled with symbols and signs. And, you yeah. know, I mean, she saw her, her imagination, her sacramental imagination. Is off the charts. I mean, you know, she saw through everything uh, to something beyond uh, what would Newman would call the invisible world. You know that there is. Yeah. And Newman Newman would say that you know the, the 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 invisible world is more real to me than the visible world because the visible world is disappearing. It's crumbling. It's disintegrating. You know, we're all kind of dying, right? Yeah, and it's going to disappear. Uh, but the invisible world never disappears. We can't see it. But it never it's there and it's permanent. And uh, and I think that's what people long for is this permanency of things that don't change the changeless world that we can, you know, we can rely upon, that we can depend upon. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, that's I think getting back to Flannery Connery, she, she, she saw that and that's what her stories were all about. Oh, yeah. That's what makes her short story so wonderful is just that the explosion of the sacramental imagination uh, that you see in her. And, and it shows forth in her biography, too. Right. These delightful little anecdotes where she dressed up her chickens with little vests that she made and so on, uh, uh, just because she believed that chickens were more than just chickens. You yeah. know, I mean, yeah, that, that there's something, you know, Chestertonian at the ethics of Elfland about yeah. a chicken. Right. Uh, and, and so that's why she did that much to the delight of the people that would visit her farm and would see these vested chickens running around. Um, it's a shame. Yeah. She died of, I believe lupus at, at such a, a young age. One wonders what she would have accomplished. But anyway, let's let's uh, then get back then uh, to the liturgy. What are your thoughts in general on the on this? Uh, we don't want to necessarily get all uh, you know into deep controversial waters here. But we're talking about the Eucharist and Eucharistic revival, so we're talking about more than just the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist or revival of respect for that. We're talking about the uh, respect for the mass as well in, in general. So just generically, what, what are your thoughts right now on the state of the, of the liturgy? Let's just limit it to the United States or the Western world uh, as of today. Um, you know, I, I mentioned this to you um, before that, you know, I believe that the new evangelization will not really take root unless there's a true liturgical renewal, a liturgical component. It's not a matter of apologetics. It's not a matter of historical proofs. 
It's not a matter of uh, logic, you know, to, to, to bring people to Jesus. Uh, it is uh, a matter of, of, of people experiencing the transcendent God, you know, that, that they have a personal encounter with the mystery, uh, the mystery of God's presence. And that is only, well, I guess you say it, it can happen anywhere, right? I mean, God can touch the soul directly. I mean, that that's supernatural uh, intervention. And then people have that. But it's most commonly experienced in within the context of the sacred liturgy. And we've all had those experiences, whether it's through a hymn that we're singing or a passage that's being proclaimed from the scriptures or a sermon, you know, a great, powerful sermon. Right. Um, or the action of the liturgy, you know, that it's almost the pageantry and beauty of that liturgical rhythm and, and dance almost around the altar. You know, that 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 kind of experience takes you out of this world and takes you to a world that is very real and exists, and you are allowed to enter into it for a certain space of time, an hour, you know, or if the preach the, pre, the priest preaches a long time, an hour and 15 or 20. Um, but you know, that experience of the liturgy, um, we have to have to feed our souls because we can't just, it can't just be all up here. You know, it has to be in the heart. And, you know, I, we just went through in the, in the liturgy of the hours, the whole story of the Exodus. And it, it kind of dawned on me uh, again that, you know, the whole reason for the Israelites to be freed from slavery in, in Egypt and God's intervention through Moses and Moses' negotiations with Pharaoh and the, you know, the plagues and, you know, all that beautiful story about how finally they were released. And then, uh, and then of course, the Pharaoh said, what am I doing? I got these people back. My chief labor's <laughs> gone. Let's get them. You know, yeah. but the whole purpose of it, it wasn't, you know, because it's inhuman for a, human, for a person to live in slavery, which is, and the, and the conditions were terrible, and they were, but it's so that they could worship God. That was the whole purpose of the, the liberation of the, of the people of Israel was that they, they to get out of the shackles and away from the Egyptians so they could worship freely God because the human heart needs to adore God. And, and to worship him properly. And well, yeah, in proper worship, right? Not just any pagan kind of worship. Yeah, not golden calves, you know. Well, it's interesting, the golden calf, because that shows you that the people have this need and desire to worship something, you know, other than themselves, you know. And so they'll fashion a golden calf and they'll worship that, you know. But the proper worship, you know, the proper worship of God. And, you know, of course, you know, for us, as, as we get into the new covenant, that, that now it, it goes from the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament liturgies to yeah. the, the, the Mass, the Holy Sacrifice of the Man, Eucharistic liturgy. So that, you know, that, that, that we need that. And, and we have to have that experience at least once a week on Sunday. At least that's the minimum. And that's this beautiful thing about, uh, you know, I, when I became a Catholic, you know, I kind of was a little bit wondering, like, man, I got to go every Sunday. I mean, I, I, and if I miss it, that, <laughs> that's like a big deal. If I miss just once, you know? Um, yeah. And because that Sunday obligation, which, you know, under the pain of moral sin, if you, if you freely choose not to go, if you're sick or snowed in or whatever, that's okay. But you know, that's because you need it. 
And the church is saying, you need this. And if you don't have this, and if you go for week after week, month after month, and you don't get that contact with, with the transcendence through liturgy, then you're going to diminish. You know, your soul is going to dry up. And so that's why the church puts that Sunday obligation, because they know, <laughs> the yeah. church, she knows that we, uh, our default is, I'm going to stay in bed, you know, I'm, I'm going to sleep in, I don't have to work today, you know, and so that's yeah. why the church says, no, you have to get up and you have to go because you need this. God doesn't need, God doesn't need no. us. You know, he do- no, he doesn't, obviously. Uh, but he certainly wants us. Uh, yeah. And I think, you know, something just popped into my head and hope I'm not throwing you too much of a curveball here. But it does seem to me that, you know, the reasons for a demise of the respect for the Eucharist are probably multifocal. But it is there is a strange correlation between the the the, the slow decline of Catholic respect for, you know, going to mass on Sundays and a decline in, an, in a culturally across the board in our desire to keep the Sabbath day holy. Uh, you know, I can remember as a little kid growing up in Lincoln, Nebraska in the 60s, that my father would never dream of mowing the lawn on a Sunday afternoon, nor would any of our neighbors. Most grocery stores and retail outlets were closed on Sundays. Uh, and, and gas stations even were closed on Sunday. So if you were going to go see grandma on Sunday, you better darn well fill up your, your car with gas on Saturday. Uh, if you wanted to buy milk on a Sunday, remember you had to stop at these little convenience shops just outside of Lincoln city limits because you couldn't buy groceries on Sundays in Lincoln. Now I'm not saying that all of those laws necessarily those blue laws, as we used to call them should still be in place in all their particulars. But one of the things that strikes me that they were designed to protect wasn't so much, you know, the sanctity of the day in the abstract, but the ability of human beings to actually respect the Sabbath. In other words, as soon as it, you know, as soon as say a Kmart or a grocery store decides we're going to stay open on Sundays because now we can, that means employees have to stay there and work on Sundays. And then once that floodgate was opened, now everything is open on Sundays. Everybody works on Sundays. You know, it's it's all over the map. There was a famous case of a postal worker somewhere around here that just went to the Supreme Court where he didn't want to work on Sundays because the post office is now delivering on Sundays. And so there you go. So I'm wondering what you think about that. Is there a link between keeping the Sabbath day holy and respect for the Eucharist? I think, yeah, I think you draw a good, a good correlation there. I think that I was thinking, yeah, I remember when those and I think 7-Elevens were the first culprits to break the Sabbath rest you know they were the ones that that dared to stay open on a sunday yeah uh, you know no offense against seven eleven but uh you know that <laughs> they, they were the, and then the kmarts and everything and then pretty soon 24 7 you know so that sunday becomes just the same kind of day as monday tuesday wednesday thursday there's no difference you know seven days they're, they're all the same they're all open for work um but um I think it goes hand in hand, and that's probably something to think about more deeply is what is the connection there? Because, you know, um, obviously, you know, we still do maintain, uh, even though the, the percentages has have dropped, of the Sunday obligation, even in the Protestant world. I mean, Sunday, you go drive around on a Sunday morning in any town in USA, and you're going to look in the parking lots of churches, and there's going to be cars there. So, you yeah. know, people are people are going to church on Sunday, Catholics and Protestants. Um, but then the rest of the day could be so, you know, could probably be very, uh, very similar to any other day of the week 
Whereas in the past, when we were growing up too, um, and I didn't grow up Catholic, but I but I do remember this that we didn't we didn't do those kind of things. And my my dad, you know, didn't really do much on a Sunday. He wanted to rest and be with family. We had a big family meal in the evening. So that practice, you know, that that, that has probably declined along with mass attendance. There's some connection there. I don't really know what it would be. I don't really I can't really think now what it would be. I think about that a little bit more but what, what is yeah I, I like i said it just popped into my head and i didn't mean to throw you a curveball but uh you know it just it does I, it's something that as a theologian i i remember communio the journal years and years ago now had a whole uh issue devoted to keep the sabbath day holy uh and you know what that means broadly theologically speaking and and i think it's to a great extent something that we've kind of lost and uh, not to open too much of a can of worms here, but I remember being a little bit resentful when my own daughter was in Catholic youth organization sports programs, oh, yeah. and and we would have sporting events on Sunday afternoons, uh, and and I thought, well, okay, sporting event isn't work; it's family oriented. I can see why this is not technically a violation of the Sabbath, but still, I I found it to be a great intrusion, you know it wasn't restful at all. Let's put it that way. And, and, but anyway, that's a can of worms. And I know there's arguments pro and con on, 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 on that issue, but let's get back to the, the liturgy as such. Um, do you think that there needs to be a revival of more traditional forms of liturgy, say mass ad orientum, uh, more Gregorian chant, you know, like I, I, I'll be openly honest here. I actually, even though I'm a cradle Catholic, I attend an Anglican ordinariate church near me in Scranton. And I and my wife and I attend it precisely because of the beauty of the liturgy. And the liturgy there is ad orientum. There's lots of Anglican style chant. We receive communion at an altar rail, kneeling on the tongue with intinction, um, very elevated English. And, and so, you know, lots of bells and smells, incense and so on. Um, so what, what do you think of, of, of all of that? Yeah, I, I've thought long and hard about this. I've, I've, I, one of my first experiences of liturgy, you mentioned at the beginning of the program, is my visit to Fontainebleau in, in France, which is a Benedictine monastery, which uh, retains Gregorian chant and it's really a very liturgical life. I mean, they're in the church seven times a day, chanting these psalms in this beautiful Gregorian chant, you know, which the CDs are, you know, very popular and people, people like that kind of music. It's uplifting. It kind of takes you out of this world. So that was my first, as a young Catholic, um, my experience of liturgy. And so I have always had a great love for traditional liturgy, Latin. I studied Latin. So I had an introduction to Latin when I was, uh, even before I was Catholic, when I was in the humanities program as part of our course of study. Right. So I've always uh, been, you know, intrigued and attracted by the traditional liturgy. Um, and, you know, I think what it, and of course, the liturgical renewal is a fascinating, and I know you've done a lot of studies in the, you know, going back to the beginning of the 20th century, you know, and the whole, the whole entire century was a part yeah. of a full renewal of, of trying to get back to a, an active participation, you know, full and active participation in the liturgy. The idea being that it, it does take us to this place where we can encounter the Lord. And these traditional uh, practices, and again, you know, there's not just one that does it, but, you know, Ad Orientum, for example, 
you know, I'm a big fan of that. I, I uh, have, I, whenever I celebrate at the cathedral here next door to me, um, all the liturgies, whether Sunday, ordinations, Easter, whatever, always auto-oriented for me because our church was built that way. It's a very modern church, you know, it was built in 19... Oh. to say is our cathedral was built in 1965. Right. Now, just think about that. What happened in 1960? What things look like in 65? Oh, That's gee, I wonder. But I tell you what, I often tell people when they visit Lincoln to visit the Cathedral of the Risen Christ, because I think it is a beautiful cathedral. My only complaint is they did remove what I thought was a very very striking statue of the resurrected Christ that was behind, uh, I believe, behind the main altar, which now I think is out front of the church somewhere. Is that you're talking about the corn cob? Yeah, the, everyone called it the corn cob, the corn cob Jesus. I actually liked it. I thought it was beautiful. It's kind of interesting. It's a very 60s thing. You know, Jesus is kind of rising out of the cornfields, you know, because we got we grow a lot of corn here in Nebraska. So it's, he's coming out of a shock of corn, you know, which is, yeah, okay. Um, but it's outside but, yeah, it's outside now. I uh, maybe I'm just uh, a troglodyte uh, Philistine, but I thought that it was beautiful. But anyway, I think the cathedral is 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 a beautiful cathedral, very modern but very beautiful. But anyway, back to you and at Orientum. Yeah, so it's really built for at Orientum, where I'm standing at the altar. It's just a beautiful uh, positioning of, of orientation to pray. Um, but also at the seminary and at the Newman Center downtown and at the retreat house, all four of those places, everybody knows I've been doing this for eight years now, eight or nine years, that whenever the bishop shows up, he's going to do it out of Orientum. And, and, and that, again, it's, it, it's, it's for some people, it's a radical uh, kind of almost like a, um, you know, you're, 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 you're making a statement or something. Well, not, I'm not really trying to do that, but I, but it does, you know, it does take you, uh, um, you know, you're standing there with the people in solidarity facing the Lord, and we are all, you know, facing the, the same direction, and we're praying and offering our prayers to God, and it's not the priest kind of lording over the community, but he is with the people leading them, you know, it's sort of yeah. like leading them up the mountain. If you were going to lead a group up to the mountain, you know, you wouldn't walk backwards facing him, right? You'd be facing, you'd be heading to the top and keeping your eyes at the top. And exactly. Leading, leading the people up the mountain. That's what I see it. And so it's just one little thing that kind of, again, points to that beyond what we're doing. There's something that we're doing that's much greater and we can't really see it. And then also the other traditionally make what you call trappings of the of the tradition, like a communion rail, kneeling when we receive uh, the smells and bells. We say these all these sights and sounds and tastes and smells. These are all part of our our senses, you know, and as St. Thomas says, all knowledge comes through the senses. So the more that we can activate the senses and the more that we can engage the senses, the more that we're going to be able to enter into the mysteries that these senses tell us about, the smells, the incense, sight of smoke rising like prayers going up to heaven, and right. the, sweet, the sweetness of sanctity from the incense and the smell that comes from the incense, all these are the bells, the beautiful sound of a natural ring, you know, associated with the, the choirs of heaven, those kinds of things, all those things kind of assault the senses and take us to places, you know, that we can't get ourselves to by willing us to, the, to those places. And it's interesting because you see this among young people. Um, when we built the new Newman Center in 2015, um, the pastor there, Father Mattia, he, he took a poll and he asked, okay, like, what do you guys want in this church, you know? And so they wrote down and by and large, the majority wanted a communion rail. All these college kids, these millennials, you know, they wanted to kneel. <laughs> 
you know, and uh, they wanted to have um, a beautiful stained glass window and they get that magnificent stained glass window behind yes. the altar. Um, they wanted, you know, beauty. They wanted beautiful colors. They wanted statues. They wanted, um, you know, uh, the saints. They wanted to be, you know, they wanted to be surrounded by this beauty. And and thanks be to God, we were able to accomplish that. And it's like a magnet for these college students at this big, huge public secular university. They just, I, I stop in there, and there's just, it's there's there's never less than a half a dozen kids in there just sitting there. Uh, now we have Eucharistic adoration there, so they come to adoration. But you know, so there has been this interesting attraction of these. Uh, young people. And I, you know, I, I, I kind of coined this, I kind of came to me uh, when I was at the SEEK conference, you know, the focus. So we had 17,000 college students and I was thinking about this. They wanted me to give a talk on the liturgy and they wanted me to talk about the importance of the liturgy. So it kind of came to mind that, you know, that I was sharing a little bit like what we're talking about now, how important it is to have this experience of the, of the other transcends. And it just seems that you know, a less watered down, kind of a less kind of uh, banal type of liturgy, um, you know, uh, which just consists of words, which is more rational and, and kind of intellectualized. Yeah. But with all the other trappings, you might say, the smells and bells, young people are attracted to that. Why is that? You know, what, why, what is? I mean, these people, they don't know anything about the liturgical wars. They were all born after the year 2000. So I asked the question, how many of you were born after the year 2000? And, you know, like, they all raised their hands. I knew they would. So Vatican II for them might as well be Council of Trent. You know, it's a historical thing that happened in the church. They read about it in history books, but they're not, they weren't part of what we were part of, and that is the post-conciliar liturgical wars. Latin, yeah. no Latin. Ad Orientum versus Pope. You know, all these kind of things these, that are still going Organ on. Organ masses versus guitar masses. Guitar that was masses. the big one. Yeah. At, the... you know, felt banners or not felt banners, you know, all this <laughs> stuff. And you know what, to these, these college kids today, you know, they don't, that, that that is totally irrelevant to them. They're looking for God. And so, you know, I I kind of coined this, this came to me, this term, you know, because, you know, Lincoln, we've got, you know, we, we're kind of a traditional place, as you know. And we have the Latin Mass, and we have the, actually the fraternity of St. Peter, which they're all about the Latin Mass. They have their, their North American seminary here. So we've got- Right there in Denton. Yeah, my brother lives a mile away. Yeah. Yeah, right there here. So we're kind of at the epicenter of traditional Catholicism, you know. And sometimes we're referred to as rad trads, you know, like radical traditionalists. So that rad trad. So I told these young people, I said, you know, I don't really like that term. Uh, I, I can't get offense at that, you know. Uh, but I said, I see a new kind of young people person, and 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 I, and I I'm going to call you guys glad trads. And glad. <laughs> And, and the definition of a glad trad, and I had a thousand little breakouts, I had a thousand college students, and I, and I identified, and I said, a glad trad is a co college co-ed female girl in sweatpants, a hoodie, and a mantilla. <laughs> and, and I looked out there, and there were like, you know, dozens of these Zach, you know, they were, they were in sweatpants, they had a hoodie, sweatshirt, and they, with their colleagues on the front of it. And then they had this lace mantilla over their head, you know, and that, right. that was a glad trad. And they loved, they loved the, the lit liturgical, they loved the chanting, like the Latin, they loved all that stuff, the smells and bells. Um, but they weren't part of this whole polemic of the liturgical war. Um, and so I think that that tells us something that, that the young people are looking. And also when you talk to them and ask them and they, and, they, and some of the ones that have thought about this, there's a certain resentment that they hold that they were deprived of this great patrimony in their faith, that they were never told 
that this what what the, what we have today in the Novus Ordo has this long history, and you know it has all of this beauty that's been kind of removed for for good reasons. You know, I'm 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 big on the Novus Ordo. You know, I you know that's I'm I'm a child of the Second Vatican Council, and there were you know good reasons for uh, the, the 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 changes in the liturgy. I think, and we can talk about this in another podcast, but I think it went too far. It wasn't really what the, the those who drafted and wrote and signed Sanctum 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 Concilium um, didn't have the liturgy that we have today in their minds. I, I know that. Oh. I think that absolutely. And now we can, that's a whole different topic we can talk about. But um, the fact is, is that as they discover the beauty uh, and experience it, actually, they experience the beauty and they go to a, a mass that's filled with all of these beautiful liturgical uh, gestures and whatnot, they're attracted because it takes them out of their their very secular world in which they live, which is which is you know doesn't have a whole lot of beauty in it and mystery and transcendence, and they're taken to a place where they really experience God, and that's what they like, and they may not be able to explain why they like it. They just go. Yeah, that's you know. We- there we could do this in another podcast too and follow up on this uh but you know periods of great upheaval whether it's in culture at large or in the church are often characterized by wild swings of the pendulum okay mm-hmm. and and the fact is is that the novus ordo after the council did represent a very strong swinging of the pendulum away from the old traditional liturgy and the reasons for that i think are very very clear which is that what we call today the extraordinary form of the liturgy, when it was the ordinary form, was quite often performed very poorly and did not form people very well. And there, almost everybody, almost everybody agreed that a reform was, was of some kind was needed. And furthermore, something has to explain why the culture of the church collapsed almost overnight after the council. If the preconciliar liturgy was so profound in forming Catholics into a non-contractual form of Catholicism, a deeply convicted form of then then why did it collapse overnight why did people run and embrace felt banners and guitar masses and all that so quickly so that let's that's a whole podcast for another day but i would say this the pendulum in my opinion i don't want to ascribe to you any opinions but the pendulum swang too far in a kind of protestantizing direction a kind of iconoclastic direction and now it's sort of swung all the way back and you find true radical traditionalists say, well, well then a, a pox on the Novus Ordo. Let's just all go back to the to the old Latin mass. And that's why I actually and I hate to sound like a broken record. I keep pointing towards the ordinary liturgy as a sort of midpoint. It's mass in the vernacular prayed out loud with dialogical responses from the community, uh, which I think is is an advancement over the old mass. But Mass said, ad ad orientum with chant and bells and smells and communion rails. To me, this is this is the the great middle Mm -hmm. path that, in my my opinion, a great many of the council fathers and you brought them up. This is kind of I'm not saying in particular, but kind of the liturgy that they had in mind. Yeah, I think you're right. Isn't it interesting, too, that uh, this kind of came about as an anomaly? Uh, it wasn't part of the renewal. And then, you know, it was really kind of the wisdom of John Paul II and Benedict and Francis too, that, you know, we got to make a place for these Anglicans who, um, and just the other day, or not too long ago, another Anglican bishop 
yeah. uh, converts to Catholicism, you know? So we have to find a place for these people in the church and they still want to kind of retain their, as they say, Anglican patrimony um, and meaning the high liturgy, which is, you know, the British, you know, are always, uh, you know, the best in that, you know, language and, and beauty and music, you know, I mean, we think of like the Cambridge Boys Choir and all those kind of oh, yeah. tradition of, of, of English hymns and um, all of that, um, that, you know, in making a, a space for them and allowing them to have a, some form, uh, kind of a hybrid, I guess you maybe call it a hybrid, uh, a liturgical hybrid of, yeah. of Roman Rite, Novus Ordo, but then uh, certain elements of the uh, you know the common book of prayer that that, that was came that came out of the Reformation. There's a lot of ironies in this fire, you know that um, here this basically is a Protestant uh, a Protestant liturgy, an adapt adaptation of a Protestant liturgy into the Roman Rite, which is more traditional and less Protestant than what we have in the norm. <laughs> exactly. I wasn't going to put it that way, but I'm glad you did, because that's exactly how I think. And um, and once again, none of this is meant to cast aspersions against the Novus Ordo. And I'm not just saying that the Novus Ordo is is the ordinary form of the church's liturgy, uh, liturgy. And it is the liturgy of John Paul. It's the liturgy of Mother Teresa. It's the liturgy of Oscar Romero. And I mean, it's it's and I know a lot of, you know, trads don't like Oscar Romero, but you get my point. It is a liturgy that has sustained the faith of millions, and it is not to be lightly disparaged. There were elements to it that I think were a step forward, such as mass in the vernacular. But let's get back to young people and, and evangelization. Um, we, we, and we have maybe about five or ten minutes left here, uh, young people and evangelization. Um, obviously, we don't want the Eucharistic revival and all of these changes in the Eucharist uh, Eucharistic devotion to simply be an appealing to the choir. In other words, young people that are always already interested in the faith and, and there you're right. There's an increase now among those types for a more traditional form of faith. But what about, what about more middle of the road Catholics? I don't mean far out atheist types, but middle of the Rome Catholics, what I call insider outsider Catholics, Catholics who kind of go to mass and are glad the church is there but have a kind of outsider's relationship to it. I'm not quite certain how far into this church they really want to go. So what, what can we do to reach out to those people? Yeah, that's a really interesting and intriguing thought because, you know, I say, you know, maybe Catholics to keep one foot in the church and one foot in a, in a different world, and they want to keep both feet firmly in those two worlds. Yeah. Uh, and they don't want to pull their foot out of the Catholic world because they, you know, they're really, they're, they, how do you say, in a good sense, proud of their Catholic identity, um, mm -hmm. mass um, on Sundays. But then again, they're not too, they don't want to go all in because they don't want to be, you know, that's going to kind of crimp their style a little bit. Um, so what, yeah, and that's what I would say probably the majority of Catholics are. So what, what do we do with that? Well, I think, you know, one bishop told me, it was interesting, you know, a lot of things that we're still sort of um, kind of uh, learning about the pandemic, the effects of the pandemic. And one bishop told me, he said, you know, I kind of saw the pandemic as, you know, it really, it was like a tree that just shook the tree. And a lot of those leaves that were barely hanging on fell off. Yeah. Because I do, I, I do think we lost a lot of people 
that you know we're, we're we're barely barely hanging on and then they were live streaming during the pandemic and then once they had to go back to church they didn't come back so we got you know so but uh, and and those that were really firmly rooted you know the the tree i don't know how you know how hard the, the tree was shaken they stayed on you know that's it's interesting because it's interesting to note that the giving the financial giving has not declined so that those who were giving before the pandemic are giving after and even to a greater extent than they were before. Wow. So, so, and those that weren't giving, you know, who let's say fell off the tree, well, we, we don't even notice the effect of that financially because they weren't giving anyway to begin with. You know, they were had right. you know, one set out and they were just. That's right. It. They're the kind kinds of, that maybe toss if they have a loose dollar in their wallet yeah. when that, you know, <laughs> I'll you know, toss get, this dollar in. Yeah. Or worse, you know, whatever coinage they have in their pocket. Oh, yeah. If they still carry coins in their pockets, you know, they, they kind of. Yeah. Exactly. And so that so financially, you know, the church didn't take a big hit on that in that regard, even though the numbers declined. And those numbers that declined on Sunday mass going were probably those that were barely hanging on anyway. But so but those are the ones that we really need to go after first. Because, you know, they're not the ones that have completely rejected, intentionally rejected the church or whole positions that are diametrically opposed right. to the church, you know. They're like you say, they're, they're, they're kind of in and out, you know, and, 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 they, and they have this, this, this kind of identity. They, 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 they love the church in a certain sense. And so how do we get to them? Um, and that's, I think, where we need to be a very, we can't go at, after these folks, you know, like, uh, you know, in a real aggressive, uh, you know, kind of pugilistic way, you know, where we're kind of trying to convince them to get back, guilt them back, you know, why yeah. would you leave? But we've got to understand, you know, because they're living in a world that's so highly secularized, you know, a world that is so much present to them. We need to go to those, as Pope Francis would say, to those peripheries. And I think those are the spiritual peripheries, the secular uh, you know, right. world that, that, you know, people live in, majority of people live in, and we need to kind of uh, present an attractive, winning, joyful, you know, a very joyful Christianity that bespeaks um, truth and goodness and beauty in a very joyful and winning way, and not through guilt or not through condemnation or not through argumentation. You know, you might be able yeah. to win an argument with them, but you're not going to win their heart. Yeah, that goes to, you know, I gave a talk in Lincoln uh, last year where I yeah. talked about, you know, the need in evangelization for this powerful, vicarious suffering of the other um, through empathetic means of trying to understand where they are. Uh, to that end, uh, we're sort of running out of time, but uh, one of your assistants send me, sent me your pastoral letter uh, on the Eucharist that you sent to the diocese, Love Made Visible. Right. And I love how it begins, if, I, if my bifocals are working here. All right. We are made for love. We are made, we are made to love and to be loved. Each one of us longs to be loved because love is the source and the meaning of our lives. Without love, our lives feel empty, meaningless, and lonely. Most of us have found that nothing can take the place of love and so on. And you mentioned earlier, you know, that there are these Catholics and I think that's beautiful, by the way, and it speaks to that joy that you're talking about that needs to be communed, the joy of love. This is not a punitive religion. You know, believe this or the God of love is going to break your legs, 
you know, some sort of sacramental protection racket, as I like to call it. Get to mass or God's going to break your legs yeah, there. Um, save yourself from that. No, this is a God of love, you know, and and I and I think this needs to be emphasized sort of over and over and over again, that our that our fundamental message here is one of love. And I think this is why so many Catholics who maybe are, like I said, the insider outsider types, people like you said, one foot in, one foot out. One of the reasons why they won't abandon the church and don't want to anyway, is that they know, they know that take away the church and what else is there? Mm-hmm. They know that they have one foot in the world, but they understand that that world doesn't really ultimately fulfill them. It mm-hmm. doesn't give them that love that keeps from them from despair and loneliness as, as that church does. And I think that's what we need to really build on. Right. Yeah. I think of the words of Peter, but to whom shall we go, Lord? You know, if we, if we don't go with you, you know, then we, we, we have nothing out here. And, and I think that that's a good way to put it because people, you know, in that pastoral letter I wrote, you know, it, we believe that God is love. And I think that's pretty much universal. You know, people see that, you know, some people have different understanding of who, who God is, but, but God, God of love, Jesus, you know, Jesus was, uh, he, he preached love, right? Love and mercy. And everybody kind of universally, he's a good guy, you know, and, and everybody, nobody can say he was, you know, a bad person. And people want to be like this good guy because he forgave people, he loved people, he understood people, he empathized with people, he forgave, all those kind of things. So, you know, he's a model of, of, of a good person. And, and of course, he's God. And, and, and you know, if, if we believe that God is love, then the Eucharist, is love made visible. And that was the whole purpose of that. that, it, that this, if we believe yeah. that it's love, and, and then we believe that the Eucharist is God, then that's love made visible. But I think he touched upon something very basic, and that is everybody wants to, to love and be loved. And, and, and it's universal. And if we can attract that, if we can present that, you know, people will, will come, they, they will come to the church. And, in a, and I mentioned this very briefly, you know, I went through a period of time where I lost that. You know, I suffered from depression, anxiety, depression, and I had to take time off, you know, because, uh, you know, and I will go into the whole reasons for it, but I, I came to the point where really I lost the joy of life. And to me, that is the very worst thing to happen to a human being. And I think that in a highly secularized world where people don't even have one foot in and one foot out, that's why mental illness is so off the charts now, because they look at the world, the information's coming to them, you know, 24 seven, they don't see anything else. And they say, what, why, why live? You know, it's, it's utter despair and tragedy. You know, you look at everything that's happening in the world. This is, it's, it's, I don't want to be here anymore. You know, and that, and that, a lot of people are in that space, you know, and I, I yeah. felt, I think the Lord took me to that space as, as horrible as it was. And as the worst thing that ever happened to me by far in my whole life. And it was a period of time about maybe almost two years. And thanks be to God, I got through it out of it on the other side of it. But it, it what it helped me to understand is that there are people living in this space and, and, and they need to be, uh, evangelize to say, look, there's a way out and there's a better, and there is joy. There is real joy and love and you are loved. And there is a God who loves you, who doesn't want you to be in this state, who wants you to be living a life that's filled with joy and hope 
for a future, that you have a future, that there is hope in your life. And I think that the, 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 the you know, the kind of the increase of the secularization of the world in which we live, the godlessness, you mentioned it in your talk, you know, that we live, we live in an age that the primary challenge of our world, opposed to generations of civilizations before us, is that it's godlessness. I mean, at least in the, you know, at least the happy pagan had, yeah. had, had a god that, that, that yeah. he or believed in, you know, it was a pagan god, a false god. Yeah. They had somebody to, to worship. Whereas we live in a, in a, in a wasteland of, of godlessness. And really the only, if you stay there, the, the only way forward is despair. Yeah. And, and you're either left staring at your gut or your, you know, or your veins. Uh, or, or your Mercedes Benz. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so that, that, I mean, we're, we're running out of time. What a great way, perhaps, to end this, which is that the ultimate, the ultimate goal of Eucharistic revival, the pr real presence of Christ, the importance of the liturgy, is that it should bring us joy because it liberates us from the principalities and powers that depress us, that create in us all the various dysfunctions and loneliness and despair of our life, that Christ brings joy. Uh, so well, we should have a follow-up conversation on many things, I think, but I want to thank my my old friend, my old seminary buddy, uh, His Excellency Bishop James Conley, who to me is just Jim. <laughs> you know, so thank you, Bishop. Thank you, Jim, for joining me today. It has been an absolute joy. Thank you so much. Thank you, Larry. God bless you. You too.